Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy... You have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is the podcast. It's Thursday morning. John is giggling over here. How are you, my head? Ah, it's all good, as always. But do you know what's interesting? What's interesting? No, no, <laughs> it's I, always interesting. I thought I sparked a thought <laughs> process. Go on. Do you remember we were talking to Mark and Eric last week? Yes, uh, Lonergan and Blythe, and Blythe comes out as a Fenian Hun, which is quite <laughs> the impressive. Very, very same, the very same. And we were talking about GameStop all last week, actually, yeah, with, with Avalon yeah. and Katie as well. But Eric was saying there's going to be pain, a lot of pain, and there's going to be... He said a lot of people will lose a lot of money very quickly. And what happened? A lot of people have lost a lot of money very yeah. quickly. Yeah. GameStop has collapsed in value. All those people who bet as part of that herd, many of them got out and made a lot of money. Yeah. But many did not get out. And the really interesting thing about stock market dynamics, particularly when you've got this mania, is that on a Monday, the scarcity could be the stock. So stock is scarce and everyone pushes it up. Yeah. On a Tuesday, the scarcity is buyers. So there's nobody to buy, right? So okay. the, the extraordinary thing that happens in these stock market manias is that the herd switches like this. Yeah. So what happened was all the day traders bid it up. Bid, 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 right? Then certain people realize, okay, the job is done. The hedge fund is burned. Yeah. Now what? Now what? <laughs> yeah. Now we own stock in a company that has got a almost a dial-up internet business model. Yeah. If you think about yeah, it, yeah, right? yeah, you know, yeah, it's yeah. selling second. It's as, still as, a shit stock. As, as Avalon said, it's a dumpster company. Yeah. Right? Now, therefore, all those buyers turn to sellers. They try to sell, but there's no one to buy. Exactly. So buyers disappear, so the price collapses. And Eric, because he's been doing this for a long time, and he's also a student of economic history, and he likes his discussions of tulip mania and this mania and that mania. We loved all that. And he was, he said last week, he said people will lose a lot of money and they have. Yeah. The house always wins. The house always wins. The exchange always wins. Because the exchange, think about it, the exchange gets a little commission whether you're buying or selling. So as long as there's volatility in the stock, 
and there's momentum and there's volume, the exchange wins. Yeah. And ultimately, what this is, it's a lesson in late stage economic cycles because we are now in 2021. The stock market boom happened, it triggered in March of 2009. Mm. It's a long time. So March 2009, Bernanke unveils this policy called QE. He was the head of the Fed. Head of the Fed. So 2008, everything collapses. Banks yeah. collapse, everything, right? We go into Christmas 2008, two things are happening. Obama, think about it, Obama is in his first month of presidency. Yeah. January 2008. So Christmas 2000, January 2008. Bernanke in March says, okay, Bernanke was a student of the Great Depression. Very, very brilliant scholar. He also understood, he read a book by, uh, there's a very famous book by Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz on the monetary consequences of the Great Depression. Okay. And Bernanke was a student of these We've talked about that one before. Yeah, we have, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And what they said was that the Great Depression was a monetary phenomenon, that the central banks did not inject cash when they should have done as quickly as they could have done, and therefore what was a recession became a depression, and the problem was an absence of money in the system. Right. So Bernanke is a student of this, and I, I know this because it was March 2009. He said, okay, we are going to introduce a new policy called quantitative easing, which is basically we're going to inject as much money as possible. Stock market says the crisis is over, starts to rally. That rally started 11 years ago, 12 years ago. Right. Now. So we're now more or less March 2021. So we're 12 years into this. Can I, yeah. can I ask you then that, so the more crashes we have, the more we learn from it. So therefore... Should, should we have we, a crash tomorrow? <laughs> yeah, no, but we'll, we'll come out of it in, in a quicker... We'll know how to deal with it well, better. Well, that's a very... It's a good point is do you learn from your mistakes? It's a very, I mean, history repeats itself, as we've seen over and over again. The, we, yeah, history does repeat itself. Never in... And I don't want to use the cliché chimes, <laughs> rhymes and rhythms and la, la, la. But history <laughs> does repeat itself, number one. And number two, the reason it does repeat itself is that humans never learn from their mistakes. Okay, so, you know, it was the big housing crash in 2008. Yeah. Now, we were, as we were talking earlier in the week about how house prices have stayed high and are even going up during yeah. this pandemic when you would have expected it to... They should have been collapse. falling. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So if we get to another housing crisis crash in the next few years, it's possible. Yeah, it is definitely possible. But... Would we have learned enough to be able to deal with that better or to uh, recognise it? Well, I mean, this is going to be the, the entire angle we're going to take in, in today's podcast because yeah. we're going to talk about a book which is very interesting about why humans don't really learn, number one, and number two, why economists peddle ideas which actually don't make any sense. But because right, economists yeah. are quite elevated in society, people say, oh, well, your man must know what he's talking about. Yeah. And then you scratch the surface and you say, actually... He or she doesn't know what they're talking about. But we'll come on to that in a second. What Mark and Eric were talking about was that madness at the end of a cycle. What I was saying, the cycle started 12 years ago. It's a long, long mm. rally. Mm. It's a long boom in stocks. And a lot of the professional players have got out of the market. A lot of them have cashed in their chips. And what they did was they cashed into the retail investors, 
Yeah. The retail investors take various different guises, but at the extreme end was this GameStop thing. And I think Eric Lonergan was particularly exacting and definitive last week. He said, this is not going to end well. Yeah. And the people who believe that they are the vanguard of some movement against the elite may well be that way, but they're going to lose money. And now we're seeing that's happening. Well, is it an elite thing or is this a, a classic case of the expert versus the commoner? The for common one man versus the expert. Yeah, I think it is. Like, I mean, you know, I happen to think that what was exposed last week is a permanent thing, which is that when you see companies being shorted by Wall Street, mm. there will definitely be a gang on the far side of that trade who will go against them. One, because they know that at a short squeeze you can make a lot of money on if you get out quickly. Right. right? And two, because they want to burn the house down. Yeah. They want to say, no, screw yeah. you. We're going to have a go. It's a principle. It's a principle. And, that's a-, a, and that's a new thing. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's a really interesting new thing. And I don't think that's going away. However, you got to be really clever because what you are is you're really playing with fire. When you're shorting the market, when you're, we talked about it all last week, yep, when you're yep. dealing with options, yep. which is basically a buy now, pay later approach. But that's only works for you if stocks go in your direction. If they go against you, your exposure is huge. And lots and lots of day traders in the States, many it could be hundreds of thousands of people. It could even be millions of people are much poorer today than they were last week. And that's the yeah. problem. But it, it, is it just my imagination or are there more people standing up and going, I don't get this. I don't agree with this. And going against the grain on a principle or on a, on a whim, something they've yeah. read somewhere. Because there's so many. And we talked about this earlier as well, about facts and alternative facts and all that kind of nonsense but, you know, there are people taking and putting their whole life savings on stuff. Well, look, I think that the lesson from the last couple of weeks in GameStop and then it was in silver and whatever, is that the financial markets are an unbelievably dangerous place. And the reason they're an unbelievably dangerous place is they are a crowd. Yeah. Crowds are dangerous. There's a great book by Elias Canetti called The Power of Crowds. And it's about how humans despite the fact that we all want to be individuals, like the great yeah. Monty Python, we're yeah. all individuals. Or if not. I'm not in life of Brian, right? We actually love crowds. Look at human yeah. behaviour. Crowds are a phenomenon of humanity. Well, it's safety, isn't it? Safety, safety in numbers. It's not, it's not just safety. It's, it's safety. It's belonging. Crowds need an objective. If you look at a crowd, a crowd loves to grow. It's got its own dynamic. It loves to grow. So crowds, by their very definition, grow. They also have a sense of persecution, that there's an enemy outside yeah. that's not them, right? They also have a sense of momentum that we're moving in a certain direction. So if you look at human behavior when it comes to crowds, which I find really interesting. Yeah. I've always found this fascinating, why people are attracted, why people get sucked in, why people run into a mosh pit at a gig. And what's, what's a very interesting thing is if you look at crowds where in normal behavior, Humans don't like touching each other, right? If you get on a, if you're, if you're on a bus or something, you bump up, up against somebody accidentally, you say, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah, right? okay. Think okay, about that. Okay, yeah, we yeah. actually don't like to be touched in public. It's not a cultural thing. Where you're no, kind of it's everybody. All humans will react quite aggressively to being touched in public. So sorry, I didn't mean that, right? Yeah. 
However, once we psychologically get into a crowd, we want to be touched. So that's why you've got dance festivals. That's why you've got football fans. That's why you've got all these crowd phenomena. The closer we are together, the better, Yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So at a certain stage, human behaviour changes. I'm, and it's very, very deep. It's very, very old. And it's very, it's, it's not unique to us because the pack is the oldest phenomenon in animalistic behaviour. Sure. The wolf pack, yeah. the human pack. We want to be in the pack, right? And what the internet has done is it's sort of supercharged that by creating crowds everywhere. So why do you think, for example, on Twitter... Communities, they, yeah. Why do you think Twitter, people get cancelled straight away? You get cancelled, like say somebody says something wrong, right? And there's a surge <laughs> of a crowd. Yeah, yeah. And that crowd goes mad for maybe a day and then it goes away. Yeah. So the crowd loves these big ideas. But it's also- so the GameStop thing is all about the dynamic yeah. of crowds, which I think... And then you think, okay... What else has got crowd behavior? And this is when we come back to this idea of conventional wisdom, of preconceived ideas, of notions. And of course, economics, like any discipline, is as susceptible to these sort of preconceived notions. And it is validated because the crowd of economists get behind it. And the person who stands outside the crowd, and this is the interesting thing in crowds, The person who stands outside the crowd isn't just a loner. They're actually a threat. The crowd becomes annoyed by their very independence. And I find this to be something that I've noticed. You know, like my approach to economics has always been this sort of walkabout economics. They walk around and say, oh, I saw that, and la, la, la. And and, and, and I've always... Economics in action. Even when we were kids, John, you know, there's a gang of mates person who's slightly outside the gang is not only throwing down the gauntlet to the gang, but by their own independence is actually annoys the gang. Yeah, well, it's undermining their authority, the whatever authority, authority the, the that is. The collective authority. Yeah, yeah. So and you, you, if you look at the dynamic of crowds in every area of life, what you see is a crowd not only needs an enemy outside the crowd, but is always conscious of an enemy within the crowd. So they're always looking for traitors who aren't really part of the gang. Yeah. And then they're always, a crowd needs an objective. And that comes back to the GameStop. So the objective of GameStop was to destroy the hedge fund. And people joined this gang and because of the internet, what would have been, I remember when I worked in the city years ago, you know, the traders would go mad over a stock price. Yeah. But there was a thing called the pit. And in the pit was the FX traders, the foreign exchange traders. Right. And you could hear them going mad. And I used to look at this dynamic and I was very interested in this <laughs> shouting and roaring and fucking hell, you fine, all that sort of stuff, right? <laughs> and then the price would be done and the crowd would disappear. And then it would get violent again. But that was only maybe 50 people on a big investment bank. Right. Now, with online trading, it can be 5 million people. Right, okay. That's yeah, what yeah, makes yeah. it phenomenal. Yeah. So, you know... It is a really fascinating way to look at the world. And when people step outside the crowd, they're not just enemies, they're traitors. And traitors are much more dangerous. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. 
They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Now just before Christmas a book came through called How Economics Ruins the Economy. Free Lunch Thinking, How Economics Ruins the Economy by a financial journalist originally from Kildare called Tom Bergen. Now, every, you know, you know me in the podcast, an idea like this excites me straight away, particularly a title. And the introduction starts with a fantastic quote from Keynes that I think all economists, students of economics, even people who are vaguely interested in economics should take on board. And he says the following, The ideas of economists and political philosophers, both when they are right and when they are wrong, are more powerful than is commonly understood. Indeed, the world is ruled by little else. Practical men who believe themselves to be quite exempt from any intellectual influencers are usually slaves of some defunct economist. Said by the great John Maynard Keynes in the general theory of employment, interest and money. Another way of looking at this is the world is ruled by bad ideas by dead economists. And that's probably true. And this is what Tom Bergen is trying to look at in this fantastically provocative book. So, Tom, how are you? I'm good. Thank you, David. It's great to, to be here talking to you. Not at all. This in is the a, ether. It's in <laughs> the ether. But this is a great, great, great idea, which is to take some what they used to call in the Bible years ago, shibboleths, right? Ideas Absolutely. that if you, like, if you just repeat the mantra often and often enough, it can replace hard thinking and it's a truth. And you're saying that economics has bequeathed on the world a lot of ideas that sound right, but actually aren't right at all. Absolutely. The book looks at eight different ideas which govern policy all over the world. And as I said, back to the quote you mentioned there, that politicians and policymakers have heard these ideas. They have been convinced that these ideas have the, the status of scientific truth, that these are things that reflect the mechanistic way in which the world works, irrespective of your political viewpoint. And they've gone with it. And they, they believe this is the way you have to run your economy, your, your, your political system. And what's really interesting is, one, you know, we see that these things don't seem to work, which is, which is interesting and, and very worrying. But also what in some ways even more worrying is that we came to believe that they worked without any really fundamental basis. And so normally, for example, in medicine or physics, we, we believe something, but it's gradually over time, people found new pieces of information. It was a painstaking process of research and discovery. Whereas in economics, 
somebody has often had an idea, maybe a century ago, about this is the way the world works without ever actually doing any data analysis or even looking in, in, in a systematic way at the world. And then that, that paradigm or, or viewpoint is imposed on all different kinds of situations. And so people just assume this applies. And what's particularly worrying is even when the evidence that does arise doesn't support that viewpoint, they continue to, to believe that. Now, a really good example is the, the minimum wage, where people just assume something because they thought that's the way that markets work or economies work, but they didn't actually have you know, data or studies to support that. And indeed, when the studies did come through, they willfully or otherwise misinterpreted those and ignored lots of other evidence. So can I stop you there? So the idea would be one of the great, we call them like articles of faith. It's like the creed at mass, you know, I believe in one God, Father Almighty, yada, yada, right? Because I mean, I've, I've, this, is, this is the sort of carry on that has annoyed me about economics for a long, long time. One of the articles of faith is if you raise the minimum wage, you will cause unemployment. Tell me why that's not true. Well, yes. Because we're about the, to put John here on the minimum wage, you see, so we've got to worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> so we're getting a bonus. <laughs> <laughs> well, well the, the, the first thing is to say that we have seen this put into place. There was a huge amount of reluctance to do that over the years. All kinds of warnings given, it has been, and it hasn't hasn't happened. And one of the ways I, I think when you when you look at this, and I think it's inter- it's really important to look in case by case situations. So so what, what are some of the biggest uh, minimum wage employers in the world are companies like ISS, SecureCore, you know, some of these, these people who do service in the service economy. And they're quite clear if you go onto the analyst calls that the management give each quarter, you know, they tell you, say, well, it's not a problem, we just pass it on immediately. And that's something that economists can't really understand. They think, well, wait a second, if this company could previously have increased their prices to, in this case, accommodate higher wages, wouldn't they have already done that? So that's, that's something that doesn't fit with the existing economic model. But the, the reality is, in the real world, these companies do that. So it does seem that the economy can flex in some way. In other cases, you'll see that people's margins might get eaten. If, if those margins are above what they need to, to break even, well, then you know they, they can accommodate that. But the, the thing is, the, the economy seems to flex. Uh, it's, it seems to be sufficiently sort of elastic to, to allow for this. But you know the, the processes are complicated. But the one thing that isn't the case is that no one... Uh, as Gary Becker, the Nobel Prize economist, characterized in the mid-1990s, he said, we have decades of data which shows the minimum wage destroys jobs. That was factually not true. Actually, Gene Carter, actually can I just stop there? The yes, vast sir. majority of things that Gary Becker said were factually not true. <laughs> no, it's, it's true. I mean, Gary Becker believed in a weird world. I mean, I'm just going to tell people who listen to the podcast, this is a Nobel Prize winning economist who believed that people marry <laughs> and fall in love based on economic principles of self-interest. Wow. Extraordinary stuff. The guy won, I mean, total horseshit, right? And again, running counter to millions of years of evidence about the human as a cooperative species, as a cooperative animal, as an animal that cooperates all the time. In fact, the secret of our success, you could argue, is that we haven't been self-interested. In fact, we've looked after each other. And that's what makes us interesting. I look, Tom, you've said it, there's another great one here because we're talking about like Brexit's on at the moment and uh, people are saying, oh, well, we're, Britain is going to deregulate to growth. Basically, we're going to, regulation harms economic growth. And if we can have less regulation, so if we can turn our country into a large cesspit, then we'll get economic growth. Tell me about that one. You said 
There's no evidence for that. I mean, it's, again, this is, a, this is what people see as a free lunch. So we're, it, it, we want to induce growth. We want to get it going. So we just get rid of these shackles that tie us down, red tape. And I think, you know, it's a very visual image. People can see this idea. Oh, my gosh. Rather than actually doing something productive, people are spending all their time filling forms. And it, it, so it's got a hugely intuitive ring to it. The problem is that it doesn't, again, have this sort of, you know, statistical basis to it. In reality, if we look at individual regulations that come into place, particularly at the moment, that most countries in Europe do a cost-benefit analysis. And we can see that most regulations that, we, that, are, that are introduced actually, you know, have higher benefits than they have costs. The track record of, it, of attracting business through, you might call it a social deflation, which is to kind of deregulate, it doesn't really happen. You can look at places like the shipwrecking yards on the beaches of Bangladesh, and you can see that, yes, they have attracted shipwrecking business from places like Taiwan. Places like Taiwan tightened their regulations, and then okay, Bangladesh was able to attract these. But these are very isolated examples. When you look across the piece, the only companies which say that they do steer their investments towards countries with lower regulations are companies which typically pollute. So they would be you know, mining companies who use cheaper mining extraction processes. So the one thing that we can't see when you do cross-country studies, when economists, you know, others do this work, they just can't find the evidence for that. So it's one of these things that we think, oh gosh, there's going to be a free lunch here. But you know, many regulations, insofar as there is a cost to them, it's a shifting of a burden. So, you know, you have a situation like beryllium, which is a, a shipbuilding industry, the dust that that it creates when you're sort of taking paint off old ships, that can lead to cancers. Now, the Trump administration got rid of some regulations on that, and that will save businesses money, definitely. However, the people, you know, the workers will get cancer and that will lead to additional costs for insurers and for the workers themselves. Well, you know, it's funny, Tom, you know, you, you list eight classic myths that need to be ventilated and ideas that need to be focused on a little bit more. But what seems to come down to it for me is that all of these ideas are driven with the explicit objective of making a few people very rich and the vast majority of people left behind. So, you know, you're talking about the, you talk about do lower taxes help growth? Do high taxes make us lazy? Does, is job security economically damaging? You know, and when, when we read them like this, it sounds ridiculous. But yet, this is a type of ideology that has taken root. And the economics profession has allowed itself to be, I think, used by ideology. What do you think is, is, is actually going on here? Well, I think that economists have enjoyed being influential. So if they... Oh, and by the, by the way, no, no, we will continue to enjoy being influential. <laughs> <laughs> hold your eye there, hold your eye there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the David well, McWilliams yeah, yeah. Economics Podcast. <laughs> well, I, I, as a journalist, I, you know, put my hand up. We, we, we hardly shy away from trying to influence things. But what I mean to say is that you know, if you if you hold out the promise of being able to explain the world in quite a detailed way, not just in a sort of conceptual way, like you throw out interesting ideas that people should consider when they think about how to tackle a problem, but actually when you say to people, I am able to prescribe you specific tax rates you should apply, specific regulations you should get rid of, then you can become very influential. So I think that's definitely the case for, for economists. And I think that's also sometimes why economists haven't 
been as you know scrutinizing of themselves as they should be. I mean, one of the you know interesting people I met researching the book was Paul Romer, who's a Nobel Prize American uh, winning economist. And you know he has become something of uh, an unpopular person in, in 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 the economics profession because he he called out a lot of people, you know, just saying, look, this is all nonsense. This is ideological. There's 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 no fact for this, and you're using a lot of the complexity that comes into economics economics to just hide your flaws, not to explain things. So I think that that's you know definitely a problem with the with the with the economics profession that you know self interest to preserve oneself that you say things that you know a reasonable person wouldn't 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 see that's not true. But no you're absolutely right. I've always thought that economists and I because I have come through the whole classical education economics and you know economists end up using like things like mathematics not to shed light but to bully people. You know to basically to, to bully others uh, and you're not ha- half as pure as me. But Tom, I think this book is going to do really well. I've really enjoyed, as I said to you, I've, I've been I've been flicking through the ideas. I've really enjoyed it. And I think that it's something that only a financial journalist could have maybe woken up one day and say, hold on a second, does this emperor have any clothes? I've been listening to these people. Just tell me very, very briefly, how did you arrive at deciding? Because writing a book is a big endeavour. It's a big, long difficult process. It's arse on the seat for many, many hours and it's a hard thing to do. So why did you decide? What was your eureka moment when you said, I'm going to actually have a look at this thing? Well, it's, it, it, it is, as you say, it's, it's, it's a grind. But th- this came out of actually my day job, which is working as a financial reporter for, for Reuters. And what I specialize in is I, I tell people sometimes I, I deal in stories that are too boring for anybody else to look at. So it could be digging into the weeds of tax avoidance, of regulation. And what, it all really started back about 2012 when I, I was at that stage doing a series of investigations into, into international companies and tax avoidance. So one of them that... But by the way, and, please please don't mention, this is going out to an Irish audience, please don't mention tax avoidance and international <laughs> large companies. We'd know nothing, planning. We'd know nothing about that. We'd know nothing about that. <laughs> Uh, it is interesting. I've always, always thought the, the 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 quality of reporting in Ireland on tax is actually incredibly high. Um, I suppose for, for obvious reasons, perhaps. But, but but in any case, I was doing a lot of research and looking at companies like Starbucks and Google. I did a series of investigations that got a lot of coverage here in the UK. Led to some parliamentary inquiries, and then just as I was you know going through that 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 process of listening to that, I I, I found myself frequently talking to politicians. Um, and also economists and trying uh, trying to understand th- their thinking. And one of the things that, that, that came up was, okay, you're, you're you're reporting on these sharp practices that companies are engaged in, but actually, you know, frankly, corporate tax is a bad idea. And here's the, the economic reason. The OECD have done all these reports. And then also I've done a lot of work on, on, on safety issues. So this looks at involved maybe looking at disasters like the Grenfell disaster, seeing, you know, what was, what was the regulatory background to this? And again, that's another kind of situation where people are saying, oh, you know, red tape. The problem is we can have too much of it to strangle the economy. And so through looking at the sort of facts on the ground, and the theory that I'm hearing from economists, that, that just over the years, that just seemed to be quite a, quite a significant disconnect. So I was really interested. You, you realise, Tom, you were a very, very dangerous person. And uh, <laughs> if, I, if I were you, how, how can you not take what we say as gospel? No, but but it, it is interesting because you should expect to get quite a reaction to this book. Because economists are not used to being questioned. 
And this is one of the things I've, I've said it before about younger economists. I say, you know, you have to break out of the tyranny of the peer group. That's essential for you to become a free individual, a free thinker, and to be able to use your knowledge a little bit more laterally and a little bit more unusually and maybe a little bit more relevantly. I mean, we say at the top of this podcast every week, to understand economics, you've got to understand human nature. And what you've done is you've actually gone to look at the human nature and say, actually, this doesn't make sense. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, the conclusion of the book, I, I talk about Ronald Coase, who's a British economist who achieved great fame, particularly when he's living in the United States. And he's somebody who I wouldn't agree with a lot of his ideas. He, he's someone, for example, who said that he thought there shouldn't be any regulations in some respects. He said most regulations were bad. But towards the end of his life, he lived to be over 100. So he had a huge sweep of experience. But he, he really lamented the way in which he economics had really just become a study in price sensitivity. And he, he, he lamented what he called blackboard economics, people looking at equations and macro data and failing to go out and look at the world. And I think that is one of the, the great problems. So as you say, you know, the straitjacket of the peer group and what everyone is accepted to be true, applying these long-held rules to every single situation down to somebody's marriage. You know, this is something that has been recognized by other people, but unfortunately, you know, the, one can give direct answers if you follow this paradigm and, and, and framework. So I can see why it's quite, a, quite a, attractive to people to go down that avenue. Tom, listen, best of luck with the book. It's a really great read. The book, again, is called Free Lunch Thinking, How Economics Ruins the Economy by Tom Bergen. Tom, great to talk to you. Thank you, David. It's a fascinating book. Good ideas. Yeah. Good ideas. The, the one thing I just want to pick up with you, you spoke about kind of articles of faith. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And the whole thing about minimum wage equates to higher yeah. unemployment. Yeah. I've always wondered about... This whole idea of you got to pay the big bucks to get the big kahuna CEO guy, that's always bothered me because why would you want somebody who's driven by money and not passion for the actual company? Do you know what well, I mean? Or somebody with skin in the game, as it were. I know what you mean. So basically, this, you know, the minimum wage causes unemployment and are the chief executive needs to get paid fortunes, right? Yes, super money. The, the way I look at a lot of silly economics, and I use the word silly, right? Because if things are imposed on others and they prove to be wrong, it's kind of, that's a silliness, right? Yeah. But on the other hand, there's a mendacity in it because I always look at policy and say, qui bono, who benefits? Yeah. It's the best way to look at everything, right? And for example, the only people who benefit from the superstar CEOs are the superstar CEOs. Exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you look in the, for example, the banking world is a great example. So, so basically you have this ideology that was largely started by Neutron Jack, Jack Welch, who I knew and I worked oh, for. Oh, the GE guy. GE. And he started with this idea of shareholder value, that the only way, the only obligation a company has is to its owners shareholders, yeah. not to its stakeholders, not to its customers, not to its employees, not to the yeah. community, not the environment. And the extreme version of that, John, is that we will... It's a horrible approach. Yeah, it is really and very, very narrow and it's very 20th century, yeah. not 21st century, yeah, right? Yeah, it is. And we will employ the best CEOs and we will incentivize them with stack, right? Mm. 
Now, of course, if you identify somebody with stock, right, it means that they have an endemic interest in boosting the short-term stock price, mm. okay? Because they're getting paid every year yeah. in the short-term stock price. In short, it's being driven by money. As money, to- yeah. And in the banks, like as I've always said, the easiest way to rob a bank is to run one <laughs> because yeah. banks get robbed from the inside out. Like our perception of a bank robber is a fella with swag getting over the wall <laughs> like when we were kids. But in actual fact, the people who really rob banks are people inside. Yeah. So what they do is they run the banks and all companies to boost short-term profit Yes. and get paid. Yeah. Now, if you're in the business of boosting short-term, like all companies, for example, have a long-term profitability. And this is the difference between the disrupting company and the incumbent company. Yeah. A disrupting company can, in a very short period of time, change the game and get all the goods. But in general, the return on capital is quite stable. So if the return on capital is quite stable in the long term, as it should be, if you see a company ramping up the share price, they're doing something technically, maybe not illegal, but they're doing something which is actually to the detriment of the entire company. Yeah. And what you have then is economists believe in this notion of efficient markets hypothesis, right? Okay, explain that one. This is a total bullshit idea, right? Right. (laughs) And it basically says that there is so much transparency in prices that there can never be an over or undervaluation of a company. It just is. The price is what it's efficient. Markets are efficient. Right. Now, we know, we just talked about GameStop. Markets are completely inefficient. Yeah, yeah. They're driven by all sorts of emotion and greed and speculation and fear and lust and all these crazy things, right? But in order to justify excessive compensation for incredibly rich people, economists bought into the efficient markets hypothesis, which basically means the share price is the price and they can never be wrong. So therefore, if you started that... This is the idea yeah. of what Tom's talking about. Ideas that are kind of silly. That's on the on the rich guys. Then you think the poor guys, the minimum wage, right? Yeah. Now, in any product, there can only be two pieces of payment. One is, like, so let's say, for example, a anything you sell, mm. there's a profit side, which is the return to the owner, and there's a wage side, which is the return to the worker. Sure. And there's a pendulum that goes between both of those in the economy. So profits ratios to wages is a very important uh, part of the economic cycle. Now, if you take the view that minimum wages cause unemployment, right, what you're doing is you're saying to a company owner, you can squeeze as much out of labor as you want, which is basically squeezing money into your own pocket. Mm -hmm. And we will justify this from this general theory that you don't have to pay people very well because you know what? The minimum wage causes unemployment and we don't want unemployment. But that comes away. So that's another shibboleth. It's a a mantra. When you think every country, we introduced a minimum wage in this country and our rates of unemployment collapsed. Employment went through the roof. Why? Because there's loads of other things going on, right? Right. That was good good times, though, wasn't it? That was a good... No, 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 but pre-COVID. And COVID will pass. Yeah. This economy created more jobs than any other economy in Europe by a country mile per head of population at a time when we had a minimum wage. Mm. So you think, who agitates for no minimum wage? People who earn their income from profits. 
So rich people. Yeah. Capital, yeah, yeah, yeah. capital owners, right? I have no problem. We look, John, this is a this podcast is a capitalistic venture. We throw it out there. If people listen, they do. If they don't, they don't. I believe sure. in the yeah, market. Okay, I exactly. believe in the market, but I don't believe in this sort of nonsense. And what Tom Bergen, to get back to Tom, is doing is he's shedding light in this book on nonsense which has been peddled as a truth. But when you actually go and look at the data, you realize not only is it not a truth, it's just simply a lever of somebody's ideology. Now, why I have you there again. Why not use the time when you're locked up to learn economics? Join me on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Let's learn economics together. We have the economics course. Macroeconomics has never been as essential to understand. We have the Ask Mac tutorials every other week. We have Q&A. We've got the reading list. And more importantly, you become part of the community. If you have a question, if you have something that's going on, you want to ask me, join me on Patreon. Email in. I will answer your question. But more importantly, it's ad-free. Just you and me and your man across the way. Patreon.com forward slash Dave McWilliams. And let's figure out the world together. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.